This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Right On, showcasing the work and lives of Otago and Southland writers. Tune in for news and interviews with your local writers on the second Wednesday of every month from noon to one and repeated the following Sunday at 11am. The University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe-atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and it's sponsored by that great team at the University Bookshop. So grab your lunch and a cuppa and find somewhere cosy today <laughs> to curl up and listen in to the next hour of chat from that wonderful world of books. Now, my first guest today is Victor Billow, who works in communications and design and has a background in the publishing industry and also maritime industry. He's just this month launched his poetry collection, The Sets. Victor, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, I'm always fascinated by the origins of people's writing. So what are your earliest memories of engaging with poetry? Well, um, I can remember writing a... Um poem about the sea when I was probably about six or seven and um, the teacher thought it was pretty good and so kind of put it in the you know up on the wall um, with a picture and basically that was probably the end from there on in because it was like you know positive reinforcement and you know it was like oh well you know and but I did enjoy it so um, I guess that was probably my earliest memory and that was when I I went to Warrington school so obviously uh, lived by the sea and we had a house down in the Esplanade so it was like um, really close to the sea so it was a big influence and actually to be honest that influence of the sea is something that's come back um, yeah, many decades later for my <laughs> new writing here. So it didn't start out as a, as a compulsion, it was you know, something you did at school, good on the teacher for encouraging yeah, no, I, Yeah, I did, I did it at school and it was, yeah, and um, I did it when I was a teenager and, um, and, and have been chipping away ever since, but just kind of got a bit more, I guess, got a bit more focused a few years ago and... Um, Running to catch up, perhaps, but yeah, but yeah. So uh, you know, I've got, I've got a bit more uh, uh, treating it a bit more. I don't know, work a work like kind of thing, which you have to do if you um, want to get you know stuff finished. Mm. Yeah. So as a young male teenager, mm. how did you find poetry as a an outlet? Oh well, I mean, I kind of was. It was kind of that and music too. I mean, and music lyrics, obviously, um, and obviously, you know, which they range in quality. But I, I can remember listening to, you know, weird old split ends lyrics from the seventies and going, wow, you know, what, what does that mean, you know? But also, um, you know, like poetry, and I was just, I just read a lot, and I went to Logan Park, and it was, you know, it was a pretty. Um, uh, okay environment for being into that type of thing. It was probably regarded as kind of being acceptable, um, whereas probably at a lot of other schools I'd have been beaten to a pulp. Um, <laughs> so I was lucky. I just, you know, I, I had that tendency already, but I just was lucky that I went for an environment that was, you know, and supportive and it was regarded as being a bit weird, but, you know, kind of cool, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially if you had a tie-in with the musos. Yeah, well, that was uh, I kind of was a, got into music too, and that was kind of sub. You know, went along for years. Those two tracks, I kind of went along, and now basically I'm kind of you know. I can't handle the late nights for the rock and roll lifestyle anymore, so it's just it's just writing, really. You've gone to the poet's lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> the sofa and cups of tea. Yes, that's, that's the one. <laughs> now, you know, there are so many forms of artistic expression in writing available to you. So what advantage or benefits do you feel poetry offers you compared to other forms of writing? Look, I, I've always liked poetry. I've always read it. Um, Never enough. You can never read enough poetry because you're always finding new stuff or, or new 
styles or aspects that you know influence you and um but I guess the reality is is in a lot of ways um although I think I I am you know it is a good form for me and one that I uh, seems to agree with me and I do okay and um is that it is easy uh, in the sense that you, you can work with a shorter form that makes it easier to do whereas um especially if you've got a more uh, discursive mindset, I suppose, as, as opposed to someone who's, you know, such as yourself sitting down writing novels, you know, which requires a steady work over a long period of time, <laughs> um, you know, and which, you know, which I've had a crack at too, haven't quite got there yet, but will at some point, you know, maybe when I'm 90. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that poetry is a, uh, in some ways it's a good form um, but you can just sit down and write a poem and it, you know, you're not committing a year of your life to it. You know, Which must be advantageous when you're trying to fit it around work. Yeah, it is. And, and that way it's, it's, it's a great... F- you know, if you're someone who's, who's got a busy life and wants to do some creative writing, poetry is obviously an obvious choice because it's, um, it allows you to do that with a little bit more ease. Um, but certainly it's not something... I, I don't see myself as a... You know, you have people who are just writers, or they're short story writers, or or, or poets. You know, they just stick to one form. Whereas, I don't know. Maybe I, I think I'm probably like to do um, more prose writing too, and I am doing that, but it's just taking a little while to get it together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and looking though through the poems in your collection, yeah. is word play something that you've? Enjoyed? Yeah, it's something that you know. Um, you know. <sighs> A long apprenticeship in poetry. I've been poking around with it for decades, you know, a long time, and um, it took quite a long time to find my own voice. And was, you know, that's that's okay. I mean, I was heavily influenced by certain other poets, and that's kind of part of it too. Everyone is, but um, the key is to, to take those influences, but turn it into something that's your own. I think I've only just cracked that in the last four or five years. You know, out of about twenty. 30 years of writing the stuff and so I'm pretty happy about that I think I've kind of you know I've got it where I feel like I'm more confident in in my writing now and so things like wordplay has always been important to me language um, I really like the not pretentious language but language that's um, you know uses language to its fullest extent and that's a really important thing in poetry it's not an important thing in other areas of writing where you want to be more concise and perhaps more minimalist, but in poetry you can kind of enjoy that a bit more, and the poets I like use language to the, its full effect, yep. So you get to indulge, which is Oh, nice. yeah, purple, pro, it's a purple <laughs> prose or purple poetry, I don't know, yeah. <laughs> Just, I, I like, uh, I, I've always liked unusual words, you know. Um, I, don't, I think it's kind of like... Um, you don't want to, you know, use kind of elevated language or pretentious language to kind of like freeze people out. But at the same time, poetry allows you to use different words and, and, and unusual words in an unusual context. And, that, you know, that's part of the fun. So that pushes and extends you and your reader. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, um, you know, if it's done for the right reasons, you know, um, if it's done to kind of... Um, Display your eloquence, or your, you know, it can be a bit annoying, and you see that sometimes in, in writing. Um, but if it's there to, as part of the poem, then it's all good. So, do you find when you write that the poetry you create is a bit of a barometer of your mood? Oh, yes, certainly. I mean, you know, um, I'm always fascinated by how, you know, you meet writers and you meet poets, and especially writers and poets and things, and you kind of you look at their work. And you think, man, that's this is a very intense person here, very heavy duty, very intellectual. And the person turns up, and they're not like that at all. They're really convivial and kind of light, and <laughs> you know. And it's kind of like, wow, didn't wasn't expecting that. So you know, that's that's true. Um, it, writing can be a barometer of your mood. Certainly, I look at my writing and I go, you know, and people comment on, it and they go, this is this guy's got a very dark view of you know the universe and. I look at it and go, sometimes I don't even recognise myself in there because I'm not really like that as a person, you know. Um, so I don't know why that is. But I, I don't question it anymore. I just what comes out comes out and you just roll with it, you know. Yes, because when I was reading through your collection, I was just writing little impression notes and one of them I popped down was like, 
slightly cynical. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, there's that element to there is it's cynical and, and dark, and which is interesting because really I'm just a light and fluffy kind of... <laughs> oh, yeah, I can see that about you, Victor. <laughs> so... Um, in your collection, the sets you know has some quite distinct sections. Mm-hmm, um, you know, right. Some are really quite personal, um, yes, some political, which we'll talk about later. So, how does it feel as a person to share personal work with a broader audience? Look, it's quite strange. I mean, um, I don't really think about it anymore. I think that. Um, you know, it's one of those things that I understand some people, you know, it all depends on the person. Some people are probably, if they're intensely private people, they might find that very difficult. I don't. Um, I'm not, like, really by nature a confessional type person. If anything, I'm quite a private person. I don't certainly don't kind of, like, go out to kind of, I'm going to show the world, you know, that's not what's driving it. It's just those are the things I write about because they're important to me. And that changes over time. You go through periods in your life, you go through um, different different ages and things where different things become, preoccupy you. And the sets is interesting because it's not a, um, some might say it's, Diverse, disparate. It's not just about one type of thing. It's it's like, but that's kind of like my poetry too. Like I like to think it's, I like to take in everything. I'm not a person who likes to just go down to one tiny little aspect of life. I want to have it all in there. So you know that's kind of why it's a bit like that. It's got different lots of different styles and content in it. Yeah, yeah. Because you know one of the questions and you just touched on there was you know I was going to ask for your writing in general. Is you know do you feel as a poet you have had seasons? Yeah, definitely. Uh, kind of winter, um, <laughs> late winter, winter. No, no. I, I think you go through uh, periods and, um, you know, you go through, um, and looking at my poetry, there's definitely zones I go through where you're maybe experimenting with different styles, um, you're dealing with different topics, and that brings out a different aspect to the poetry. Yeah. Now, one of the sections in this collection is you know, very political, reflecting mm-hmm. issues affecting society, and you've now become quite known <laughs> for your political writing. Um, how did this come about? Well, I've always been doing political writing and political stuff, and I devoted a lot of my time and energy to it, and I, I still have, the, um, obviously, my interest in that area. I just, I'm just focusing on um, the writing a bit more these days. Um, but in terms of the political Poetry that got a bit of a kick along when um, I got asked um, by Steve Bronius, um, who is on the Reading Room Newsroom website, um, to do so, a weekly political um, poem last year. Which, um, yeah, it, it was it was a great experience, and I'm really was really happy to um, use that you know experience uh, to you know just to. Do a weekly. You're working to a deadline. It's not a light and fluffy poem. You have to make, you know, or kind of like a ethereal. It has to be about something that's in the news, and it has to be pretty hard hitting. And I was amazed. It's like it was incredible. The reaction was so amazing. I was never expecting people to pay any attention to it. And man, I mean, people loved it, but people hated it, and they hated me. You should have seen some of the emails and Facebook messages I got. Oh, they saw some of the vitriol. Wow. And the thing is, because I can't help myself, I went back and answered every single one and said, well, what's, you know, and that set them off even more. I couldn't believe it. Years ago, I used to write, you know, I was involved in politics, running for you know, uh, office and things, and I'd write serious press releases and serious articles, and everyone would just go, "Oh, yeah, what is? It's just kind of a left wing da 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 da. Who cares, really? No one paid any attention. You write a silly poem, and everyone's just going crazy about it. It's it's quite. I'm amazed, and I was really happy to have that opportunity. Um, well, that, you know, well, one of my questions was going to be, how do you feel poetry enables you to reach people in ways that other writing may not? And you, clearly, it does for some reason. Well, in that area, it certainly does. And I don't know what it was because my poems are a little bit sarcastic or perhaps just kind of like, you know, people were very upset that I had, in the, you know, they said, you're, you're not, you're subjective, you're biased. And it's because, of course, I'm biased. Anyone who writes anything about anything, you know, who's not biased? Imagine writing a political poem that wasn't biased. 
What would it? <laughs> it would be dull. It'd be like a press release from the <laughs> Ministry of Primary Industries or something. You know, not nothing against that. That's a yep. valid form of writing too. But it's just like it's not what I want to do for poetry. <laughs> so, how did you find that experience then? If you were having to write each week something from the zeitgeist or the you know, political that's happening at the moment, how did that affect you creatively? Well, it was time consuming and that was, um, and you know, not a lot of time. I mean, you know, I'd, I'd be lying if I said I spent hours and hours on these poems. I can write quickly and I could write something, you know, I'm not saying I just do it on the back of a pie packet, but but it's like I can write quickly and I can write that kind of stuff really quickly. And it wasn't, I didn't see it as necessarily serious writing. It might have had a serious meaning, but I saw it as something that was just a quick kind of Zap, you know, and um, there was a uh, well, uh, Alan Kurnia, who was a famous New Zealand poet, had a persona called Wimwam, which he, he used to do um, poems for years, and he split that down his, you know, he had those two aspects to his poetry persona. And I'm certainly not comparing myself to one of New Zealand's greatest poets, but I am kind of like I feel that I'm kind of emulating that in my own little way, you know. And I yeah. suppose um, by Putting a poet, no, writing a poem quite quickly in that way, you don't overthink it. You don't second guess yourself. No, no. I mean, that's it's. Look, it's very punk rock. You're just banging it out there, and it's like you know, and that's great. It's liberating. It's fun, and you know, the funny thing is, they're often really quite good. You know, and I'm not saying they're going to change world literature, but for something that's been, you know, because you're not kind of like getting tangled up in it, you just go with what feels right and often it is, you know. Mm. Trust yourself. It's, I'm beginning to sound like a Jedi yeah. warrior now. Trust, Trust yourself, yourself, Luke. Yeah. Trust yourself, Luke. Feel the force. So, uh, lovely. Um, and you don't, when you're doing that kind of poetry, you don't self-censor yourself? You don't find yourself thinking, ooh, should I pop that out there? <sighs> Look, my only one was my own, it was kind of reverse self-censorship. I mean, a couple of them were actually censored by Steve very wisely <laughs> because I probably would have been, ended up, you know, hit squad or in court or something. Which is but, why we have editors. Yeah, yes. why we have editors, you know. So no, I don't really self-censor. I find that hard to do. I can do it. Um, but it was more a case I was... Because obviously I'm on the socialist left, I was a little worried. I, I specifically didn't want to just, you know, take pot shots at the National Party every week, you know. Because the fact of the matter is, is Judith Collins good to write poems about because she's a, that's her character and she plays up that up. Whereas Jacinda Ardern's not so easy to write poems about because it's she portrays a much more bland persona and it was harder to write about. But I did make a real effort to kind of pick up on, and it wasn't always about it in a, a nasty way, it wasn't always taking people down, but to pick up on things that from people all across the political spectrum and some people who are just on the edges of it. So you felt almost a, a responsibility. Yeah, I didn't annoying. want to just be a hack. Mm-hmm. And the one thing which did annoy me is when people said, oh, you're just a, um, a, a toady for the government or something, which was really bizarre because I've, uh, you know, I really am. Not. I'm. I've never. I've always been very critical. I've been very critical of the two main parties in New Zealand. I don't agree with our political system at all. Lots of ways. So I was very surprised when people. I think it's a reflection of people's mentality. Either red or blue. You know, it's like this. And it, to me, that's very frustrating because it just limits political di- discussion so much. Yep. Yeah. So, um, how do you find poetry in general? You know, we've talked about mm-hmm. it in a political sense, but for you know, just uh, discussing other issues in general, whether it be grief or life or or love. Well, some of the poems have a kind of a political or cultural theme that's much wider than just the matters of day. It's dealing with you know, and I kind of, I guess I'm. This isn't some thought-out intellectual position. I'm too, far too scatterbrained to kind of do anything <laughs> like that. But intuitively, what I'm trying to do is with this poetry, and I'm never going to get there. It's something you never, you'll never get to by setting yourself up. But I want a kind of integrated worldview. It brings everything in. You touch on. You you just don't divide things into these little subcategories and compartments. I want my poetry to reflect my view of the universe and the universe impact on me, obviously. And so um, I do, yeah, I do try to cover all those different areas, those personal, emotional terrain we live in, and um, more, you know, uh, 
the physical world is something I really love writing about, you know, animals and um, the environment, all those things, you know, space, the future, other worlds. I mean, why do we just have to kind of, you know, and at the same time you can bring it all back down to just having a cup of tea and looking at the window and thinking, oh, that was a bit of a dumb day. You know, you can... Why exclude anything? I want, I want it all in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, you have a background in publishing, so perhaps a better perspective on, than most on the difficulty of getting your work out mm-hmm. there to an audience. So you know, how can poets get their work out there? How did you get your right. work out well, there? Well, look, I, uh, you, you know, it is hard. I've, uh, you know, I, uh, I worked for a few years at Otago University Press, but I wouldn't describe myself an expert in publishing, but I certainly think that... I've floundered around for years. Look, I just I look back, I just don't try to think think about it because it gives me the panic attacks. But what you need to do, and this is my little bit of advice for those young aspiring poets out there, don't get too panicked about things happening immediately, but you've got to approach it not the creative side, but not so much, but the actual getting it out there in the world. If you want your poetry read, you have to approach it in a workmanlike way, and that means keeping track of what you're writing, sending it into journals. If you get a knockback, send it in again, send another one in, send it in again, and just enter, hang out with other poets, find, um, you know, join the Society of Authors and the Poetry Society, think if you can, you know, things like that, um, and just try to get into wee journals and try to build up a body of work. And it'll take some time, but you've got to approach it in a methodical completely unfunky way you've got to be a bureaucrat <laughs> Which a bureaucrat of poems that's yeah. what I am these days a bureaucrat of poems because otherwise it's, a- it's beautiful and stuff and that's mm. great if it's just for you but if you want it to be out there in the world you have to treat it in that way yep. because I noticed in your acknowledgements at the back of the book you know you had quite a list of different types of publications that you had yeah and that's something the last in. few years I really hit it hard I had spreadsheets mm. and I went through and I was sending them off on a regular basis boom 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 most of them Nowhere, but a few of them started to get through, and I got one in here, and I got one in there, and I got one in Takei, and I got one in Landfall, and all of a sudden, you know, and it just, and now sitting a couple of years later, I've got this book that's published by Target University Press, and where did that come from, mm. you know? So it, it it does, it can happen, and you just need to you just need to work at it, and uh, that's yeah. So was there a specific moment when you thought, hey, actually, I've got enough material here for a collection, or were you prodded? Well, actually, I self-published three collections before that one. And when I say self-published, it wasn't like, you know, I think if you're going to get in self-publishing, you've got to kind of do it well. It's a good uh, format these days, and I know a little bit about graphic design, so I put together reasonable professional little box, ISBN numbers, all that stuff, but I just did them myself. And I thought, because I, I didn't have the patience to wait to get published by a thing because it takes years but the process of doing that over several years doing my, these books myself I improved my writing I improved my kind of idea of what people thought about them so that's always a way of you know approaching the publishing thing and in the end what has gone to the sets there is there's a little bit from those older books most of it's post them but it's a combination you know mm. yeah and what about performance poetry <laughs> are you a man who likes to stand up in front of a crowd look it's always weird I, I didn't never really know if I enjoy it but I do it because it's kind of like I think my poetry lends itself in some aspects some of the poems lends itself to that and people have said that you know sometimes in a disapproving tones you know it's kind of a, you know you've made an impact pub, pub poet <laughs> but um you know it's like uh yeah yeah I think it's um I enjoy it. I think it's a great way of um, hearing poetry. And, I mean, like the uh, Octagon Collective Poetry Nights in Dedeen, which we we had, which are getting back up and going now post-pandemic, were a really great opportunity, um, dog with two tails uh, every so often, um, to hear um, local poets do their thing. And, it's yeah, it's just amazing to see all the... Humankind and all its, you know, <laughs> there's really different people get into writing poetry, and that's what's great about it. It's a real, you know, it's a real character. So I'm not one of them, I'm just a bureaucrat. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd recommend people to get brave and get up there and just oh, give it yeah. a go? Oh, yeah, look, I think it, it, you know, you've got to commit. I mean, this is the thing. Boots and all, it's not one of these things you can kind of just fluff around with. I mean, you, you can. You can do anything you want. But if you want to get things happening with poetry, if you want it to be a big part of your life, you've got to just admit that you've got this weird thing you do and there's nothing wrong with that. It's like it's just as good as golf or anything <laughs> else. You know, just 
be happy with it and get it get into it yeah fantastic well thank you so much Victor for coming on the show today and Thanks talking about all things poetry and your new collection the sets thank you but we're going to take a short music break and then we'll be back with some more world from the books
The university bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers' Corner, the university bookshop is evil. You have been warned. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and it's sponsored by that great team at the University Bookshop who are currently operating from the beautiful Skinner Annex building right across the road from their store in the Museum Reserve. Both their stores undergoing some renovations. I have managed to find my way across these several times, as my wallet has told me. Now, I've had the pleasure of chatting with Rachel Scott before on the show as publisher of Otago University Press. And Rachel will be very shortly retiring from that role, so I wanted to nab her and talk about her experiences in the publishing industry. Rachel, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Vander. It's lovely to be here. Let's start by talking about your journey in the world of book publishing. Um, was this something that you had always planned or did it find you? you know, how did it all start? Well, it did find me really. I, um, I got into editing after I'd worked on the student newspaper and really enjoyed that. Uh, worked uh, for The Listener for the longest time and for National Business Review. Um, and then I decided I wanted to do media kind of editing, so I got into book editing. Um, and I did that freelance for about 20 years. Um, and then I fell into publishing when um, I was working for a publisher who suddenly had a heart attack and died, to everybody's great shock. Mm. Um, I was a freelancer um, for that publishing house, and I was the only person really who knew anything about what was happening with all those books so I stepped in and um, did the job for a little while while they everybody found their feet again and I discovered that I really enjoyed it so um, I'm you know naturally bossy and um, good at organizing so it played to my tooth strengths and I love books so in the end when the job was advertised I applied and I got it so um, I was at Canterbury University Press for five years as publisher and then the job at Otago came up uh, which is a bigger press bigger and busier and I applied and I've been here for eight years now so I never intended to be a publisher but it just was a a natural extension from the editing I was doing but now I'm stepping back and I'm going to go back to finish off my career as a freelance book editor. Mm, lovely. <laughs> was, um, you've talked about how you sort of just sort of fell into your positions in these publishing houses, but you know, once you got there, was there like a career pathway in publishing back in those days? Well, not that it's like ages ago and you're ancient or anything. Well, it is really <laughs> ages ago. In fact, it's so many ages ago that um, I first got my first editing job uh, without doing any kind of formal editorial training uh, and that wouldn't be possible now. I get approximately two emails a week from people saying, hello, I want to get into book editing or into publishing, how do I do it? And I send them all to the Fitterea Publishing Diploma course, postgrad diploma course, which is great training. But that didn't exist in my day, there was nothing. Um, And so we kind of made it up as we went along. Uh, and I, when I was in my first publishing job, there was so much I didn't know. It's extraordinary now when I look back. I just asked other publishers. Everybody was really friendly and helpful, and that's how I built my knowledge. Hmm. So the industry itself was very generous with it. Yeah, absolutely. People. I mean, it's interesting because even the other university presses, we are we're rivals and we're competitors, but we're also mates. So, and I suppose that's the thing about New Zealand being quite small is you I think kind of so. have to be that yeah, way, don't you? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when you started, um, how robust was that? Was the publishing industry was it a, a solid kind of a thing? Uh, university press publishing is a little bit of a separate animal, and it's only each press is only as robust as its host university. So. Uh, In New Zealand, we've been quite lucky. Most of the universities are very supportive of their presses. Uh, One or two, not quite so much. Um, 
overseas, often university presses are under a lot more pressure. Uh, if the university, uh, they get a new vice-chancellor who decides that, you know, books, schmucks, who needs them, um, the university press can uh, suffer a very bad fate. So we're lucky here, but um, the publishing industry... It's in general, um, when I started off in publishing 15, 20 years ago, it was actually pretty, doing pretty well in New Zealand. There have been so many closures and takeovers since then. Mm. So what have been some of the career highlights for you then you know, as, as a publisher? Well, yeah, every book is a highlight when you're working on it. Um, looking back, I... Yeah, there have been particular books that have that have stood out. I think um, one of them that I can bring to mind is a, a book we did maybe five years ago called "Doctors in Denial" by Ron Jones, and that was Ron Jones was a gynaecologist working at National Women's Hospital at the time of the unfortunate experiment, mm. and he's in his eighties and he wanted to tell his story um, about what happened there and he worked with Herbert Green who was the disgraced gynaecologist uh, in that saga and um, there had been attempts to kind of rehabilitate Green and say well he wasn't that he wasn't all that bad and Ron Jones actually had strong feelings about (laughs) about the damage that he felt was done to the women in that experiment and he came out with this book which was um, really uh actually really made a difference. Uh, We had a huge launch and um, some of the women came along and Phila DeBunkle and Sandra Coney were there and they'd started off the whole um, controversy really with Article and Metro. So, and the the highlight really was the, uh, at the book launch, the Australian New Zealand Society of Gynaecologists and Obstetricians asked permission to come to the book launch and make a public apology to the women in the unfortunate experiment. Oh, that's incredible. It was incredible. And honestly, you could hear a pin drop in the room and um, Claire Matheson was there and she was crying. She was one of the women uh, originally. So, yeah, the books, publishing books like that is just such a buzz. Mm. That'd make you very proud. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> as a really. Publisher. Yeah. Mm. And were there, um, you know, as a publisher, you know, you do have to make commercial decisions and which, and there, I'm sure there were many books that you wished you could have published but just couldn't. So were there any in particular that you oh, gosh, that one got away? Uh, yes, I couldn't possibly be drawn on that. There, there, every now and then you get it wrong. Every mm-hmm. now and then uh, you make a call and say, no, this one's not for us. And six months later it appears through another publisher and it's on the – Bestseller list for a zillion weeks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you think, damn, I got that one wrong. Yeah. Uh, that does happen, mm. but uh, you, you, you don't. There's no hindsight when mm. you're making publishing decisions. I should say too that at a university press, you don't make these publishing decisions on your own. We mm. have an editorial board, and uh, submissions need to go before them. So it's a joint decision. So that's my excuse. Yes, and also, you know, as you say, each publisher has its own niche, the sort of thing that it's looking for. Sure. for. So, yeah. you know, what was a university? University Press, what was your um, accent, as it were, on, on what you were selecting? Well, that's right. I mean, we at Otago, we publish New Zealand books, uh, and we publish history and social history and natural history and Maori and Pacifica books, and we have a few other genre areas, poetry. But there's a lot of stuff we don't publish, because we only produce about 20, 22 books a year, so we can't, we can't do everything. Mm. We don't publish novels, for instance, or short stories. We, we have to draw a line in the sand and say we're not going to try and do a tiny bit of everything. We're going to try and map out some areas that we want to get good at mm. and we're going to stick to those areas and we're going to try and build up a reputation. Yes, now looking at some of the books that you have published over the years in your non-fiction and your New Zealand and Pacific books, because you know, having interviewed a number mm. of these authors, it's an incredible range of knowledge that's then being put out. It is. With these yeah. books, it's amazing. Yeah, it is. It's extraordinary. It's a privilege, huge privilege. Mm. So what advice would you give? Um, you've, you've alluded that you've, you've passed a few people on in the general direction of the Fitterea course, but what advice would you give in general look, for people looking to be in that publishing industry? You know, What sort of jobs are available? Well, not a lot. 
uh, to be honest, in uh, in New Zealand. I, I would still advise people to look mm-hmm. at doing the Federaab course because it is a one-year course that focuses solely on uh, book publishing. So you, you're looking at editorial, production, uh, marketing, writing, all sorts of, all the aspects of, of, uh, of publishing. You get a taster of all of those and you can decide whether you want to head into any of those areas. There are, um, uh, what do they call it? There are opportunities for people to... Um, uh, internships, that's the word I was after. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are internships sometimes that come out of those positions. If you get yourself um, into a position of working for a publishing house, that's probably the best start, uh, even as a dog's body, as an editorial assistant and work your way up. That's the best way to do it. Uh, I wouldn't advise anyone go straight into freelance without working in a publishing house because... Honestly, you don't know enough. <laughs> uh, you, you don't know what you don't know, and you pick up a huge amount just by working, having colleagues and working in a busy production house. So the publishing industry has certainly changed over time um, from when you started your, your career there. And what effect did, for example, you know, e-book publishing have on the industry? Well, yes, we were all terrified of e-books. We all thought it was gonna, they were going to do us in, basically. But, in fact, e-books have turned out to be just another publishing format, uh, and they are our friends. E-books are nothing to be terrified of. In uh, university press publishing, e-books make up about only, only about 5% of our sales. If you've got all platforms available for sale, um, as we do with most of our books, um, 90% of people still choose the real book, mm. the paper book. And that hasn't actually changed terribly much during COVID, which is interesting. There's been a slight uptick in um, e-book sales, but mainly there's been an increase in in book sales, P-book sales, paper book sales. Oh, they call it P-books. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So e-books haven't killed us. They've made us stronger, in mm. fact. Um, and they are just another way of getting the word out. And there are three different formats in e-books that we uh, will employ as well. So it's just another way of getting the message out there. And I suppose with pictorial books too, you're always going to be far more emphasis on, exactly. on print there, than I mean, there a are, text. Yes, there are some books that we don't actually convert to e-formats because they just would look awful and and not work so well unless we do them as fixed format and then they lose a lot of their um, flexibility and you might really you might as well buy the hard copy book. So... Um, yeah, that's it, it's more difficult with um, uh, and less useful with highly pictorial design books. And sometimes, you know, we produce books that are a book that's just a lovely little artifact. Mm-hmm. It's a maybe a hard copy, and it's got a ribbon, and it's got beautiful end papers, and it's got lovely paper, and it's a whole tactile, sensual thing that people want. I'm, an, I'm certainly in that camp. Exactly, the book is an object. Yeah, it's a beautiful object, and that people don't. It's looking at the screen is not the same. No. So yeah, <laughs> is there something about having that that almost like a piece of art? Yeah. On exactly. your coffee table, on your bedside table. Some books table. are like that. Yeah, books are definitely here to stay. Yes. And I know I always get a thriller, so reader with a hardback with a ribbon bookmark. <laughs> yeah, we we love doing ribbons because uh, readers do love them, and uh, they're so cheap to do. I mean, mm. they're just so easy. Uh, it's just a lovely added touch. <laughs> and when ebooks emerged as a new technology, of course, you know, as you mentioned, there was just this rush of amalgamations and takeovers, and a number of large publishing houses quit New Zealand altogether yeah. or base themselves in Australia. But now we see um, a number of smaller little niche new yeah. publishers emerging and giving it a shot. Is this going to be the way of the future? Uh, I think it's really exciting, all the small publishers that are starting up. Uh, and there are a heap of them. Um, uh, every year there are more and more that I've never heard of and people tell me who they're publishing with and it's a name I don't know. Um and I wish them all the best. The economics of publishing in New Zealand are really tough because we have a small market and it's very, very hard to get any economies of scale unless you're, I'm thinking mainly of printing, mm-hmm. the printing cost. I mean, if you print 500 copies of a book, I'm just making these figures up off the top of my head, you print 500 copies of a book, um, it might cost you $10 a copy to print it. 
Uh, if you print 5,000 copies of that book, um, your unit cost might be down to $2. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's just so hard if you're printing small numbers to make the numbers work. And, in fact, university presses don't make money. They lose money. Mm. And that's uh, a potential fate for small publishers. I, If they've got ways of, of funding themselves and ways of bringing money in to, to, to try and help run the operation then they're better poised to succeed. And I really, really hope they do. Yes, because they've brought such um, a wide range of types of book. I know, the different kinds readers. of book and, yeah. and different looks. And it's very exciting. The variety is very exciting. Mm. Uh, now, you mentioned earlier that with COVID, your e-book uptake hadn't actually really changed a lot. But have there been any significant differences that you've noticed that the COVID environment has, or challenges has brought to the publishing industry? Uh, our book sales last year were almost the same as the previous year, although that in New Zealand they were. Um, about 10% of our books are sold in other territories and they all suffered quite a lot in COVID. That's not a huge dint for us, but uh, I think American publishing houses and UK publishing houses are probably doing it tough. They certainly didn't sell nearly as many copies of our of our books. Um, but, yeah, sales in New Zealand were really robust and really good. The main problem we had uh, actually was shipping mm. uh, because we get a lot of our, most of our books printed in China and... Oh my goodness, terrible things happened with shipping through the UK and through the US and stuff and just terrible delays. <laughs> uh, but, you know, gosh, talk about a first world problem. Yeah. You yeah. know, we, mm-hmm. we're we so lucky in this country really that um, a, a few delays to a few books is, is nothing. Uh, we've come through incredibly well, publishers in New Zealand. And isn't it great uh, how it showed how much people value creative arts absolutely Mm. it really did i mean in the initial lockdown books were not were not um judged or as essential yeah Mm. and there was there was some resistance to that i know booksellers and publishers um kind of were slightly up in arms and thinking hey excuse me (laughs) this is essential these things are essential to our mental health and well-being uh, and I think if there was another lockdown, books might um, uh, find themselves um, toward might actually be qualified as essential. Particularly, I was you know, thinking, you know, children's books, and for sure. when there was such an emphasis on learning from home. Yeah, I think children's books did squeak through in the end, actually. But yeah, I mean, you know, it was the first time, and we there's a few things that we didn't get right, but there was an awful lot we did get right. Uh, I think that's something that would be fine-tuned if it happened again, God willing. It doesn't. (laughs) Yes. Now, um, I've heard anecdotally that a lot of people during the lockdown periods um, had a bit more time and and some headspace, although my brain went fuzzy, um, (laughs) to to write. Did you find that you had more submissions after that period? Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I like like the tone. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sometimes. Uh, one or two authors who were supposed to be working away on one particular book uh, got derailed because they needed to go overseas to finish some research and couldn't. And so out of the blue, they just um, uh, into the submission pile popped a completely different book by that person. And you're like, what? This, what's happened to this other one? Yeah, so um, there were those sorts of changes. But yes, um, particularly poets, I can say, have been very, very busy um, and uh, writing and submitting. Uh, it's tough for poets because we don't have nearly enough slots to publish all the poetry that comes our way. But yeah, I would say definitely there have been more people writing and uh, we've got... Uh, a pretty impressive load of submissions to consider at our editorial board meeting in a couple of weeks. Which is exciting. Which is exciting. It's and challenging. But yeah, it's challenging because, boy, we've only got a finite number of slots. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> now you're finishing up your time as a publisher at Otago University Press. Were you ever tempted to go out alone and start your own 
publishing place God, or house. No, no. <laughs> too hard. You should see her shudder. <laughs> <laughs> too hard. Um, no, I don't, I don't have the financial backing to do that. But also what I'm interested in now is scaling back, really, not mm. scaling up and, and finding a way to work 24-7, <laughs> which is what that would involve. I've seen various friends do that. Um, no, I'm interested in a quieter life. Publishing is uh, it's a really fabulous job. But I've just turned 65 and... Um, I'm getting a bit tired and I just don't, my energy levels are not what they were and I need to recognise that and the fact that I want to spend more time in my garden. It's um, a lovely garden. Thank you. Um, I do want to, but I but I love editing and as a publisher, I've been a publisher for 13 years and although there's an editorial aspect to publishing, you don't really get any time at all to focus on just one manuscript and and perfecting and final and and, work and improving that manuscript and actually that's more than anything that's what I want to get back to, the idea of working on one project at a time or one or two projects at a time instead of about like twenty, mm. um, and doing it part time. That's what I want. Yep. So you'll have the pleasure of being able to actually wallow in that manuscript. I will. I will. Mm. And uh, that'll be that was something that I really enjoyed and got a lot out of joy from, and. Yeah, that that's where I want to go back, and it's important that it's important to get out of a big job like a publisher, bef- well, quit while you're ahead, you mm. know, um, and make way for someone who has got fresh energy. Yes. That's what I want. And I love the way that Otago University Press did that gradually by having the co um, the co publisher thing. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, that worked for a while. It turned out to be. Pretty hard, a pretty tough job to share, actually. Mm. Mm. But uh, yeah, because there's you, there's too much that you need to know. You need to know everything, even mm. if you're only doing half the job. And that's so you're of, doing the full job in your head. Well, you are. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we decided. It was exhausting. <laughs> now, if you're going to editing too, um, or back to editing, there's such a huge market and need for good editors now with so many people self-publishing. So there'll be never a want for work. I hope not. <laughs> um, and I do. I, I do still have some mates in the in the other publishing houses. So. Yeah, I'm hoping that my name will ring a few bells. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rachel, it's been an absolute pleasure having you come in and talk about your um, your career in the publishing industry and about the publishing industry in general. And so we hope that you get to enjoy that quiet time and wallowing in some manuscripts. Thank you. Thanks very much, Vanda. Well, that is our show for this month. So thank you for listening in and thank you to my guests today, Victor Billow and Rachel Scott. So join us again um, next month for another hour in that wonderful world of books. But until then, enjoy plenty of great reading. The University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.